This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. This morning's reading of God's holy word from the Old Testament is coming from Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8 reads, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen. And also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now our reading from the New Testament and where we will be for our sermon tonight is Hebrews chapter 2. If you would turn there with me. Hebrews 2 verses 5 through 9. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. Of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. It's great to be able to worship the Lord together, to um, continue our study in the book of Hebrews as we um, continue just seeing the superiority of Christ in all things. And the book of Hebrews is just such a wonderful book as it keeps just drawing you back to Jesus again and again and again. And I know that's what I need, and I'm, I'm convinced that's what you need too. Let's take a moment and let's just pray together, shall we? Father, as we come into this place, as we come into this house, this sanctuary, this space, Lord, which is dedicated to your honor, as we gather around your word, as your people, we come hungry, we come in need, we come expecting because, Lord, outside outside of you there is no hope. Lord, we look to ourselves and we recognize we're in need. We see the brokenness of the world and And Lord, as we gather here, the physical needs, the emotional needs, the spiritual needs that we all have, 
we bring those needs to the foot of the cross. And Lord, we ask you to minister to us this morning. And we pray that you would use your word. You've been faithful to do that. Lord, in our, in our lives repeatedly, we pray that this morning. We pray that we come hungry. We pray that we listen. We pray that we have ears to hear you, to see your glory, to, to praise you. But Lord, our, our deep desire, as you well know, is for us to be changed. We want to be made more in your image. We want to live for you. And so, God, we ask you to do that through the work of the Holy Spirit this morning. I pray, Lord, that my words would not be my own, that I wouldn't say anything more nor less, Lord, that I would get out of the way and that your people would hear you. We pray that this morning in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. We as a collective people, we love the story of redemption. We love stories of redemption. Deep within us, there is a craving for things to be redeemed. And writers, you know, those who, who write books, they know this. In fact, most of the great stories ever told are stories of redemption. One such story was written in the year 1843. It's a famous one. It's called A Christmas Carol. It was written by Charles Dickens. In fact, one of the unique things about the Christmas carols is it's been made into remakes, over 150 versions is what I saw. It's incredible when you think about how many different versions and, and ways can you tell the same story of Ebenezer Scrooge. But that's the thing. The story of the Christmas carol by, by Charles Dickens, it grabs our heart. And so whether it's Disney and Mickey, or it's the Muppets, or it's Mr. Magoo, or it's Bill Murray, or it's Jim Carrey, or it's George C. Scott, or Alistair Sim, or Seymour Hicks, doesn't matter. They all are telling us the same story about redemption. You know the story. There's that old miser who's really only concerned for himself, making a dollar, the guy who says, bah, humbug, to anyone who gives him a Christmas greeting. You know that story. That same guy one night encounters three ghosts that change his life. The ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. But what's amazing is the end of the story. The redemption. Listen to what is written by Charles Dickens about Ebenezer Scrooge and his life forever changed. He says this at the end. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all, and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was like a second father. He became a good friend, a good master, and a good man, as to the good old city knew, and any other good old city knows. And then here's the very last line. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well. He knew how to keep Christmas well. I mean, who doesn't want a guy like that in your life? Who doesn't want to have an uncle or a father or somebody that just, they know how to keep Christmas well, right? In the sense that they know how to love people well. That's the picture of redemption. This guy who starts out as a miser and there's this change and the whole city is impacted by it. The story of redemption is amazing. 
The story of redemption there in the Christmas carol is just a fictitious story, but it, it, it captures the heart of what the writer of Hebrews is really after. Redemption. The story of redemption. Remember last week, we had kind of like a pastoral pause in the book. He'd been talking about the supremacy of Christ, better than angels, better, better than, than the things of, of, of creation, better than all of those things. Christ is superior. And then he pauses, and he makes this big statement, don't neglect such a great salvation. That was his point last week. And this week, he seems to pick right back up where he left off, talking about the superiority of Christ, but now he's specifically focused on the superiority of Christ and his work, the work of redemption. And the writer wants us to be in awe of it. He wants us to be captured by it. So let's take a look. Look at 2, verse 5 and 6. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, or which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Notice what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's actually, he's trying to get out of the way, and he's saying somewhere. Now, he knew where. What he's actually quoting there is Psalm 8. He's going back to one of the, the Psalms that talk about God the Creator, and the majesty of this creator. And what he's really doing is he's pushing in as the, as the psalmist talks about what is the pinnacle of God's creation. Now I want you to follow this. The writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalms, and Psalms is really talking about Genesis. And I want you to think in your mind, what was really the, the pinnacle of creation? We work through the, the six days of creation, and you do that in chapter one of Genesis, and you get to day six, and the pinnacle of creation is man. Man. All that God had created was a space and a place for man. Man was special. In fact, chapter two, if you've ever read Genesis one and two, you go, well, wait a second, it's like a rerun? But what's happening in Genesis two is, is, the, is the spotlight is focused clearly on man. It goes into detail. gives us the micro-information of how man was created from the dust of the earth. And God blew life into him through his nostrils. Interesting fact is we're only told about God's breath that way two times, his breathing. One is in the breath of life into man, and the other is he breathes out the word of God. And what's pictured there is that this creation, this six-day creation, this man from the dust of the earth, the one in whom God blew his own breath of life into, this man is a special creation. This creation is special. It's important that we understand that, that, that when he created man, he created man for something. Man was created as a privileged creation. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews then begins to say in verse 7. He says, You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. It's talking about the special creation of man. The psalmist there is really what the the writer of Hebrews is quoting. He's, He's talking about the special creation of man. And really, the psalmist is reflecting back to Genesis 1 
And what we call the cultural mandate, the special responsibility that God gave man over all creation. Listen to what it is in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. Don't miss that. Have dominion over the fish, over the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. Have dominion. This special creation was to have dominion. Mankind was to have dominion. We see this when all the animals are brought to Adam. And Adam has the prestigious job of naming them. Now, we might look at what Adam named some of the animals and kind of roll our eyes and go, how do you come up with that? Right? How do you come up with that name? Well, that's the beauty when you have dominion. You get to name things, and nobody gets to pick on you. And there Adam is having dominion. The animals are being brought to him, and he's naming them. He's showing his rulership as he rules under the headship of God. He's showing the fact that he's a special creation. He's the prestigious creation. All of creation has been made for him. And here he is in the spot where he's naming the animals, having dominion. Just bake there with me for a moment. What privilege, what honor mankind had as God's special creation. But then in the commentary of Hebrews The writer of Hebrews says this at the end of verse 8. He says, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. He's really saying everything isn't the way it's supposed to be. Dominion doesn't seem to be like it's going so well. There seems to be a problem, Houston. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Something's wrong. It's not as it should be. Now just think about the special privilege we have as the people that God has created. He's given us areas of influence and responsibility. And then think about how those areas of influence and responsibility aren't going quite as they should, are they? If we're honest. Things are a little out of control. And see, that's the problem. It doesn't take rocket scientists to figure out the fact that there's a problem. We know there's a problem. If you just turn your TV sets on, you're quickly invaded with the fact that there's wars going on right now. I got a missionary request because we have some missionary people over in Guatemala, and there's unsettlement right now. They're not sure they're going to get to the airport. They don't know should they stay longer. Where's the dominion in that? Where's the control in that? And think about your lives and how things just aren't the way they're supposed to be. There's a brokenness in this world. The new pa- newspapers tell us, the, the news channels say it, but even our own hearts tell us we're unsettled. Things aren't like they're supposed to be. And see, what's crazy is As God's special creation, there was responsibility. To whom much is given, much is expected. We we read that in the prayer. To whom much is given, much is expected. There's an expectation for those who are the special creation and having dominion. There's an expectation. 
In fact, back to Genesis 2, the story as it goes from creation and it begins to focus on the mankind, there was a covenant made with man, an agreement. And listen to what that agreement was. Genesis 2, verses 15 and 17 through 17, it says, The Lord God took the man and brought him into the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And remember, the garden was a beautiful place. It was a special place. It wasn't the wilderness. It was a peaceful place of God's presence. And, and man was given a special privilege to work it and to keep it, to be a priest over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For the day that you eat of it, you will die. And guess what happens? You just go one chapter further, chapter 3, and you read about paradise lost. You read about the loss of dominion. In Genesis 3, beginning at verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took it, the fruit, and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who ate with her, and he ate. And the eyes of them both were opened. Don't miss that. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. By the disobedience, they lost peace. They lost peace with God. They lost peace with one another. Eventually, we're going to see that Cain kills Abel. One brother kills another. We're going to see the loss of transparency. Whereas before, they're fine with walking naked and being open to one another. Now they're covering themselves up. There's concealment. But the big problem is there's a loss of innocence. In the, in, the, in the failure of dominion, the paradise was lost. See, man was created in glory and honor. Man was given dominion, but man's fall brought him into a place in which he lost everything. Hear me this morning. The fall was a big deal. Mankind strove to try to fix the problem. We read about it in scriptures. We see it in our own lives. People striving, all the self-help books, all the effort, all the ability to try to fix things themselves. But here's the problem. There is no tool. There is no ability to restore dominion in and of ourselves. That's the problem. The ability to fix it needs to come from outside of us. Why? Scripture tells us the problem. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're not just wounded. You're not just scarred. You're dead. You're helpless. There's a man by the name of Ray Rice. Ray Rice is an NFL football player. I should say he was. At the very peak of Ray's career, something happened. It wasn't an outside injury. It wasn't that. It wasn't that they decided to trade him for a younger, better player. No, he was at the peak of his career. In the midst of that, he acted in a moment of rage. 
At the peak of his career, he acted out in anger. And this act would change everything for Ray's life. See, what Ray did is he violently struck his girlfriend, or I should say then-girlfriend, in an elevator. Let me be clear, there is no lower act of man than to strike a woman or a child and hear this NFL football player struck his then-girlfriend. But what Ray didn't know was that there was surveillance video everywhere. And that hit would cost him everything. See, the video gained worldwide attention. It was on every news provider you can imagine. Eventually, Ray Rice lost his career. But hear me, for Ray, there were no second chances. He would never get back into the NFL. In fact, when most people would see him, they wouldn't even talk to him. He lost friendships. He lost money. He lost fame. And Ray would say, even in the midst of that, he lost himself. See, that's the problem when paradise is lost. We lose our innocence. And that's what happens when we disobey God. There's consequence. As you sit here this morning, I ask you the question, do you know the powerlessness of trying to save yourself, but you can't? Hear me this morning, you're not alone. We all know it. We've all tasted it. But see, the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand there is hope outside of us. We call it the good news. We call it the gospel. We call it the story of redemption. It is about paradise restored. It's about dominion returned. That's the story in the book of Hebrews. That's where he's driving us. The writer of Hebrews is pointing us from the former glory of man that was lost in a moment, in an act, that all the world would know about. But most importantly, the creator was aware that cost him everything. Innocence, transparency, peace. In that moment, God didn't abandon them. See, in that same very chapter of the fall, is a promise of hope. A promise of one who would come to redeem. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is the very first gospel message. And the writer of Hebrews wants to draw our attention to that hope. Look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering death, so that by the grace of God he may taste death for everyone. Do you see what the writer of Hebrews is doing? He's saying, let me turn your attention from the glory of man and the fall of man, which was great and bottomlessness, empty and hurtful, despair. And let me point you to the Son of Man. That's an interesting label. 
Son of man actually means the victorious one. It's the term used in Daniel 7. It's fact. It's a name that Jesus likes to use for himself in Luke's gospel. But here, originally, as the psalmist wrote, it was supposed to be used for man. That was the place of man, to be victorious, to be an overcomer, but rather they're defeated. Everything is blown away. The world is a mess. But there's hope. Because there comes another Adam, a greater Adam, the Son of Man. And this points to the fulfillment of God's promise and his love for those who sinned against him. They're not abandoned, they're pursued. They're not forsaken, they're forgiven. This is the story of redemption. This is about paradise being restored. This is about dominion being regained. And that's the point the writer of Hebrews would draw us to in the person and the work of Jesus. See, Jesus took on human flesh. God himself humbled himself for our benefit. Notice the phrase, he was made a little lower than the angels, suffering death. He willingly became the second Adam. Paul writes about this in Philippians 2 when he writes this, Have this mind amongst yourselves, he says in verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Notice the language there, empty, humble. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus humbled himself for our benefit. God himself took on human flesh because he realized we did not have the power in ourselves to save ourselves. So Christ came, humbly, as a servant, for the purpose of death. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't leave us there. He shows us the glory of Christ. Christ is to be exalted. Notice the writer of Hebrews, he uses the phrase, he's crowned with glory and honor. See, in his willingness to die for sinners, Jesus defeats death. This is grace. And he does this for sinners such as us. We couldn't do it, so he did it for us. And again, Paul, in that same letter to, the, uh, to Philippians, in chapter 2, he picks up at verse 9, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, referring to Jesus, and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humbled and exalted for the purpose of restoration. See, dominion has been restored in Christ, the Son of Man, the victorious one. And it has been restored, hear this church, already. We know that because of the resurrection and the ascension. We know that because there is no temptation that overtakens you except such as common to man. But God is faithful He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability to resist it. Dominion 
has been reassured. But we also understand, as the writer of Hebrews commentary says at the end of verse 8, at present, we do not see everything subject. We don't see it. And we're left scratching our heads and saying, but why isn't all the world bowing a knee to Jesus? And you know what the writer of Hebrews says? Be patient. <laughs> because he comes again. And when he comes a second time, it will be visible and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And his dominion will be known throughout. But see, that ability, that strength, doesn't come from within ourselves. It comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful truth. What a beautiful grace that the writer of Hebrews has drawn us to. As you sit here in the struggles of your life, some of them are emotional. Some of them are just emotional. You're depressed, you're discouraged, you're lonely. You don't feel like anybody cares about you. Some of your struggles are physical. You, you just can't seem to, to beat whatever it is that's keeping you down. There's, there's colds and there's, and, there's, and, there's, and there's affliction and maybe it's cancer and maybe it's heart problems and, and all these other things that are going on in your life and, and you have physical issues. Or maybe it's just bondage to sin and, and the reality of not truly be living obediently like you know you need to. The hope is in Christ, is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Your victory is in Christ, not the first Adam, the second Adam, the victorious one, the Son of Man. What a beautiful grace has been offered for you. And see, he goes to great lengths to say, for everyone, all types of people, Jews and Gentiles, those who are in bondage, those who are free. It's not just talking about physical slaves in, in captivity or those in prisons. It can be the prison of our mind or the prison of our, of our own being. Christ died for you. If you're looking and trusting in him, he died for the church. He died for his people. He died for every one of his people. What a beautiful truth that we can hold on to. And to know that we are restored, not in our own ability, but in him. We reign in him. Because he's victorious, we're victorious. Because he resurrected from the dead, we will resurrect from the dead. That's the hope. Then why are we living as though nothing's changed? See, that's the real question. If we've been given such hope, such good news of, of redemption, such promise of, of paradise restored, why are we living such downcast lives? Well, it begins with what we really need to do. We need to praise Him. Hear me this morning. Your life needs to be a life of praise. You need to lift Jesus up. You need to, to celebrate Christ. You need to worship Him. You need to make much of Jesus. That will encourage your soul. That will strengthen your, your, your focus. That will encourage you. Worship does that. It praises God, but it encourages the worshiper. But also, not only praise, the proper response is also proclamation. 
See, if you truly believe this, if you truly want to, to see this lived out, proclaim it. Start sharing this good news with others. Call other people to repentance. Call other people to believe the gospel. The problem is we don't really believe it. Paul did. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Let me put a little parenthesis there. Are you? Paul's not. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. He's like, why would I ever be ashamed of it? It's power. For salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek, it's power. It's power for everyone. Everyone who believes. So is that gospel power changing you? Is it changing the way you praise? Is it changing the way you proclaim? See, that's what we should be doing. We should be praising and proclaiming. Our lives should be filled with that. We should be proclaiming to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors. We should be proclaiming to anyone who will listen. We are called the witnesses of this great redemption. You know what it looks like to be a good witness? Be present. Just be present in people's lives. Be prayerful. Pray for them by name. Pray that the power of the gospel would radically change them as it's changing you. Be present. Be prayerful. Be patient. Know that God works in God's time. Trust him. Trust the power of the word. Paul did. But are we? In the 1980s, there was a KGB officer in the Soviet Union. Yes, not Russia. It was the Soviet Union at the time. And this specific KGB agent, he was assigned to break up underground Christian house groups. And he loved this job. He loved it. See, it was illegal to be doing that in the Soviet Union at the time. And so there was a a group that was actually assigned to go and stop meetings like this. Well, this KGB agent, he had broken up many different groups, and he would go and do this regularly. And there happened to be one particular woman that he saw repeatedly. Every time he broke up a group, she was somewhere else. And finally, he got so sick of it, he decided he was going to teach her a lesson, and he beat her up pretty severely, almost to the point of death. But one of the other jobs that they had is they would take all the literature, all the materials, and they would take them and they would burn them. As I understand the story, this woman had a Bible that caught the man's eye, not because it was the Bible, but because of the quality of paper that it was made from. As he opened it, he saw the beauty of what was written, and he thought, man, this is pretty. This would be great in my house as wallpaper. And so he literally took the Bible home, and he began to rip the pages out and began to plaster them on his wall. Just imagine that. You know what happens next because you know the power of the gospel. That written word that was on the wall, he and his family began to read. Not overnight, over time. As they began to read, it began to change them, but especially him as he reflected on the way he had acted against God. And there he was at his couch, on his knees, weeping over his sin praising God 
for the gift of salvation in Christ and the forgiveness of sins. Believing with all of his heart. The power of the gospel. You can change a man like that. Can it change the people you know? Absolutely. Church, do we know the joy of redemption? Do we sing about it? Do we truly praise God for it? Are we so excited about it? We want to tell others about it because we actually believe the gospel's powerful enough to change people. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand. The beauty and the power of the gospel in Christ. The supremacy of Christ. Everything Adam failed to do. Everything you have failed to do. Christ has done perfectly. And get this, he did it for you. Psalm 103, I think, captures this well when it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Doesn't stop there. Doesn't simply just give a few lines of, of praise. No, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. The psalmist is saying, Every ounce of being, of who I am, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. He continues, whoever forgives, or sorry, who forgives all our, your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, doesn't stop there. He continues to sing the praise to Christ, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, paradise restored, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like an eagle's wings. Friend, do you believe that this morning? That Jesus can do what the psalmist sings about. Renewing, redeeming, healing, forgiving. Do you believe that? you believe in the power of the gospel? The writer of Hebrews would command you to because it's the supremacy of Christ. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how glorious. The redemption that comes from Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we step away from this particular passage and this particular book as we've been pointed again and again to the superiority of Christ. As we see the, the way in which you've made us and knit us together, that we are a special creation. That before we ever knew you, you knew us. That you've called us to be your special people, to rule with you. And yet, God, we have failed you. We're failing you now. Maybe it's we don't believe the gospel like we should, the power that it provides. Maybe it's we believe our sins are too big or, or our problems too, too large. But God, help us to recapture the wonder and the awe of the gospel Help us to see the superiority of Christ 
that everything that was lost in Adam is regained in the Son of Man. May we truly know the victory he provides. And may we live for your glory, we pray. Pray this in Jesus' name and God's people said. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. 